this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots, yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. You know, when an acquirer becomes interested in your business, at some point in the process, there's a quiet conversation that takes place in a boardroom. They close the door, they ask you not to come, and they have a conversation about whether it's cheaper or easier to buy your business or simply compete with you. If you're selling a commoditized product, something you sell by the inch, by the pound, for example, or you're competing on RFPs, you're just a low-cost provider, many acquirers will draw the conclusion that it's frankly, just easier to lower their price, enter a bidding war with you, and essentially put you out of business. There's no point in buying your company. However, if you've built something that is truly unique, a brand that consumers are loyal to, or some technology that you've protected in some way, they may draw the conclusion that it's way faster, way cheaper, way easier to buy your company than to replicate what you've designed. And that's the secret behind Monopoly Control, one of the eight key drivers of company value, and something my next guest, Aton Wiener, knew quite well. Aton started out life as an Amazon reseller, but as he will describe in this episode, he quickly realized that he wasn't building any value, and he took three steps, three ways to build a point of differentiation in his company. I'll let him describe how he did it, and I'll to be glad his $30 million company acquired. Here to tell you the entire story is Anton Wiener. Hey, Anton Wiener, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Happy to so be here. So Quantum Networks, tell me in layman's terms what this company did. Sure. Um, in layman's terms, we were a third-party Amazon seller which is when you sell on Amazon and instead of selling to Amazon wholesale, which is called vendor or central or first party, you sell on Amazon. So as most of the listeners probably have been reading, that's like a very popular thing these days. It's a probably a $450 billion market as far as aggregate sales of sellers. Um, but there's different types of sellers. So we were actually an interesting hybrid of a bunch of types of seller. Namely, we had our own brand and product. We had exclusives with other brands in a buy-sell relationship model. And we had like a bundle model where we put our brand together with these products to create like a value-added solution. So through that, yeah. So through that, we were able to differentiate. Um, For example, um, you know, podcasting is very hot these days. Um, We sell these these high-end podcasting mics, kind of high-end. 
Now, if you'd go to a store, if, if those exist so much anymore, in, or in the olden days, so to speak, maybe five years ago, like you'd have a salesman actually tell you what you need. Amazon's really great, but if you think about it, the Amazon page is quite ugly and disturbing. There's so many things going on. It works for them, so they're not going to change it. So when you want to buy the mic, the truth is you don't just need the mic. You need the mic and a stand and an adapter. So we're just like, hey, let's make that as well. So we would source products from China primarily, and we had a whole, a whole line of Blue Coil. That was the brand accessories for it. So now, instead of buying the mic and me competing with 10 other resellers on Amazon, I am the only exclusive listing that has this like podcasting bundle. So it's the mic, it's the filter, adapter, software, cable. You buy it, you're happy. The brand likes us because we're making them look good and differentiating. And we make maybe more margin or we get the exclusive sale versus just competing with everyone else. So we went from many bundles, many bundle products to create like exponential level of different variations to basically create these virtual uh, product SKUs. So that was an example of the differentiation of the business. And that led us from just being a reseller to being exclusive to being like kind of special, which led to higher margin, which led to exit. That That's how I would summarize it. Got it. Love, love that. I've got so many questions about how that works on Amazon. So uh, I love your analogy of the podcasting mic because that's great. I get that. The mic stand, the light and so forth. So when you put together that bundle, because you know, when I'm uh, when I'm on Amazon, I, I'll go like I, like I'll buy a mic, and then I'll say, "Hey, customers also like yeah. these lights or the stand or whatever." Right. Is that the kind of bundle you're talking about, or is it something different? No, that's the kind. But the Amazon's wonderful. But even those like um, similar product suggestions, they're algorithmically driven and they're not so specific. But I had a team curating products here and in China to find out exactly what customers need. Based on several things, we would read reviews and see someone's like, hey, this mic is great, but it's missing this and this and that. So we would just go, it's easier said than done, we would go make or produce this and this and that. Um, or this is great, but like this doesn't work or whatever it may be and learn from the feedback how to create a solution. So instead of going all in, which you did at one point and just make a better product, which is more expensive and, and risk uh, laden, we just enhanced what was there with value. So when you go and you buy that product that you're mentioning, maybe that bundle is good, but we would make sure it's the perfect bundle for you. So if you're a prosumer, you kind of know a little bit of audio, you don't have to research. We you just rest assured based on our descriptions and our content, we got the best components for you. And this is it. Not expensive per se, but just utility and, and value. And you don't have to worry about it. You have everything you need. You're good to go. And did you create a brand? You mentioned Blue Coil. Yeah, is Blue that Coil. That was the brand, B-L-U-C-O-I-L. So it started with like just like a white label product and we put a brand to it and the packaging and people start to actually look for Blue Coil because we had bundles for storage, we had bundles for streaming, we had bundles for podcasting. And that's what led to a lot more value with our company and brand and the proposition on Amazon or on eBay or whatever marketplace that it's a full solution. In addition, we were able to sell the standalone bundle products on their own, right? So it may cost you a dollar or so to make a product, but you could sell it a charger for $15. We already had the economies of scale to buy them because we were bundling them. So we could also sell standalone, which is much, much more profitable. But that's like the whole ecosystem of bundles. It's kind of endless if you do it right. There's others that do it. Uh, I would say maybe in a more cheesy way. You know, the guys like say, here's a camera um, and it's the same price as everyone else, but you're getting like a million things. They just throw in like everything. It's a little too cheesy. This is very strategic and feedback customer driven to make sure it's what they need. And that's why it's unique. Got it. Who's the we in the company? Like you started this with some partners? Yeah. So I started the company in 2008 
um, with a partner, and then I had another partner join like a few years later. Um, his name is Jonathan Goldman. He was my partner for the last, let's say, 10, 11 years. So we were the partners, and we had a team of about 15 people in New York City, a um, bunch of overseas uh, people as well on the support <clears throat> and uh, data side. So it was kind of lean team. Got it. And, and, but you grew to a fairly significant size in terms of sales. Yeah, we grew really quickly in the beginning. Um, I don't want to necessarily go into the whole backstory, which is lengthy unless you want me to, but we got the e-commerce uh, kind of accidentally and then we grew on our own website. And then when we hit Amazon, it kind of exploded. It was much easier to succeed on Amazon then. It went from like zero to 30 million in like 18 months. It was like stupid growth, really not profit driven, but just like whatever we can to grow, learning every model. And then this bundle model I elucidated to you was only it only evolved or became something, you know, three or four years ago after we learned what to do, what not to do, how to differentiate, um, how to add value to the company, to, you know, to, to sell the company or what is it worth if we're just a reseller? Not much, but what if we have a brand? What if we have a bundle? Ah, now that's more interesting. What if we're exclusive? That's what led to a sale or a value versus just, you know, a lifestyle business or just being some random wholesaler. And that's what we developed unpack, over time. Let's unpack each of those three. So you, you went, from being a, uh, I can't think of a better word, like a generic reseller. So you're just buying stuff and reselling it on Amazon to kind of stumbling on this bundling model as a kind of an epiphany in order to, to build value. Is that um, right? That's a good way to summarize it, but it started from like, we were selling um, niche technology products that were kind of exclusive. We had a higher margin. So there's always some angle as to why we're not just another reseller. Okay. But there was still a lot of our revenue where we were just another reseller. So we got rid of those models to say, okay, we're the exclusive on this product. We're going to manage your brand, make a higher margin. We're going to manage everything. But you know, you're a smaller company. You need the purchase orders. We're not an agency. We're buying and selling, but this is what we do for you. Um, and then the bundle model kind of came after that for the more big brands, like the household name brands that people know in audio, they don't just need a reseller. Like It's not interesting to them. So how do we get them to want to work with us? by offering bundles and, and variable solutions that they can't or they don't want to. So you mix that in. So you have the exclusives, you have um, the high-end products with our bundle model. So yeah, we went from becoming a strategic reseller, I wouldn't say just a wholesaler, a strategic reseller to like a sophisticated brand bundle-driven model where we only took certain types of business because it was a certain profit requirement or a strategic relationship. I don't want to just be a me too seller ever. Like it doesn't value anybody. Um, maybe it's a quick buck, but like, I don't believe in that. Um, or maybe I did before and learned it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. In what way doesn't it work? Just to be a simple um, It's like kind of like quick money. So a lot of people, Amazon's different these days because a lot of people are doing private label. They're creating brands and they're selling their brands like crazy to all these companies that are in the papers, which is interesting for me because like I used to do this all day. People had no idea what I did now. It's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> that there's these companies buying up Amazon brands. So it's shocking to me and it's interesting. Um, but um, sorry, I forgot the initial question. Yeah, no, I, like you went from being a relatively unsophisticated reseller, uh, a strategic reseller yeah. to, to, to this uh, much more sophisticated version. But the question was, what does it mean to be a, a basic reseller? I just, I forgot. Yeah. The yeah. Like, so, so when you're just basically reselling uh, stuff, okay. so you're, 
you're sourcing stuff in third world kind of developing countries yeah. and you're, you're reselling it effectively on Amazon. Yeah. So, Oh yeah. So there's two sides. There's like an arbitrage type game where people will go and they'll buy stuff in the flea market or on eBay or, or um, uh, even in Best Buy and then flip it. Right. So that's cute. Mm-hmm. We kind of did that back in the past. That's, that's popular. It's called retail arbitrage. It's not so great because the brands don't like it and it has its own problems. Then yeah. there's just wholesale where you develop relationships with vendors, factories, you try to resell, but yeah, what are you doing for them? Amazon's so popular now that the reseller model became a challenge because they realized they could sell on their own direct to consumer on Amazon or they could sell to Amazon. So what so we tried to create value for them where they'd want to work for us because we do their ads, because we do the bundles, et cetera. So the reseller model kind of slowly goes away. So we have to do it in a strategic way to keep it valuable. What's happening now is that people are making their own brands and products, which is this whole other revolution that I was referring to. So you can make your own, you know, podcasting mic as well from China. It's actually not that hard to do. And now that's very competitive because everyone's making their own brands. Mm-hmm. But the concept now in the Amazon world is like, it's the new mall. It's the digital shelf. You can make a brand or you probably bought stuff on Amazon where you're not familiar with the brand, but it got sure. good reviews. It's a good cable. So you buy it. That's the new economy actually. And that's why there's all these aggregators buying Amazon brands. So I, I kind of was before that wave. I, I, I flirted a bit with the private label bundle model. But the, the new revolution is like, hey, make your own brand. So the resellers have kind of gone away, but there are still some that scrap here and there. The reason I don't believe in it, as I said, which is your question, I think, is it's kind of short-term gains. You make money from the vendor. There's some margin. There's some inventory risk position. But long-term, like, why do they need you? They could drop you tomorrow. There's no value. They could do it on their own. There's nine guys doing it. So how is that as a business where you go to sleep at night and be comfortable with your forward revenue? You can't. You don't have an agreement even. Maybe you have a light agreement versus proprietary bundles, exclusive agreements, real value, guaranteed margin. That's what I mean by um, sophisticated long-term versus you know fly-by-night or short-term. You can still sure, make a lot of sure. money. I know guys who flip items and they make millions of dollars, but they don't know if they're going to make it tomorrow. They really don't. And they say to me, it's not a real business. It's a revenue stream. It's very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the kind of nature of our show. So it, yeah. it's music to my ears. I love I know, I know. I love, yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you were very much a hybrid because you, in some of the items you, you branded under this Blue Coil brand. So those were ones you owned. Right. And then you were also bundling in other people's products that you didn't own, but you were included in this bundle. Is that right? Correct. So we call it like, uh, well, actually there's three. So one is, well, I would just send my, I would sell my own blue coil, uh, you know, charger mm-hmm. and that, that, that gained popularity because everyone was searching blue coil. So just to sell the charger, it was already a known product. Like we built the brand with the bundle, which is mm-hmm. interesting, but then there's two other kinds. There's the podcasting bundle where there's like three or four accessories within it. So we take a, a podcasting mic from Sennheiser or Jabra or monster or whatever, any of these big companies and we bundle it to create that value. Mm-hmm. Then there was also was a little more detail, but there's also that, that's what I call a soft bundle. A hard bundle was actually two products together. So this is a little deeper. What if you have a podcasting mic, but you really want a nice amplifier? So we weren't going to make amplifiers because they're actually sometimes more expensive than the mic. But guess what? We had a really good relationship with the amplifier brands. And those brands were thrilled to be on the same page or cross-sold with Sennheiser or Jabra but they never had the ability to, right? Because they're just working about their supply chain. So if we can come and say, hey, we have like this really cool product data visibility that if you if we bundle your mic with their amplifier, you'll both be happy. It's this nice little 
marriage we arranged and we'll increase our sales. So that's actually called a hard bundle. It's a whole other kind of topic, but that's also interesting because you allow different big companies to play together in a strategic way and you're the strategic middleman, right? That, that's hard to do. That's hard to build. But once we had the reputation and we built it up, it was easier to do because we would just saw other brands, hey, look what we did for these guys. Look what we did for these guys. Why would you say no? Some would say no, but most were like, that's awesome. Like, please, you know, help us differentiate or, or help me as a small brand be associated with a, a, a monster or an apple because then like it shows that we're legit. So that's a little more complex, but it's really, it works actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because I just interviewed uh, a guy who ran a company called Beast Gear. Yeah. Did you, did you hear that episode by any chance? The, the guy, I didn't, I don't know if I heard your episode. Is this the fellow from England who sold yeah. to Thrasio? Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. He, I met him on a Zoom. He's a great personality. He made like his own workout equipment and he was one of like the early acquisitions of Thrasio. Yeah. He's a cool, yeah. he's a cool dude. Yeah, I know. Him. Yes. Yeah. So, so cool, cool story. Um, he built, uh, he, you know, skipping ropes was his first product, but he expanded into all these other workout products. And, and eventually he got to the point where 90% of his revenue was coming from Amazon and 10% was off Amazon. And he was really working hard to build his off Amazon brand because he knew that he was susceptible to the vagaries of Amazon's algorithm, right? So he, you know, he put stickers inside the the gear saying, hey, make sure you opt in at this website yes. and register. Yes. And but when he went to sell the company, I think if memory serves, he only I don't I don't mean to say only, he I think he got three times profit for the business. Um, and I think the acquirers said, you know, like you're pretty susceptible to Amazon. Like they could change the algorithm. They could delist you that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and so I just wondered in your case, did, what were your thoughts around being so dependent on Amazon? Was that something you guys were thinking about? If so, take me through your thinking there. That's a really great question. And it's also interesting based on what I said, like that was always the fear. And I mentioned these sellers who are like fly by night. Aside from the challenge of Amazon, people get suspended for not doing anything wrong or for doing something that they don't realize is wrong. You could be put out of business overnight. Amazon just shut down Chinese sellers that were doing, you know, billions of dollars of sales because of reviews and manipulation and fakes and stuff. It's super dangerous. You're totally relying on them. It's scary. Now, over time, I learned, you know, we never actually really got suspended. We had some issues where we could have been. It was usually misunderstandings. You have to learn how to manage it. But what's interesting now is that, on the contrary, all these aggregators, like the one he sold to, are looking for Amazon brands because that's where the growth is, even though they understand the risk. Now, of course, it's wonderful to buy a brand that's on Shopify and has their own website and eBay and Walmart. And even when we sold, yeah, we probably had like 10 or 15% of our revenue from other channels, but that's not that much. So we're very reliant. Um, that probably led to maybe a lower multiple or a lower realized value. But on the flip side, this, our acquirer, another acquirer is actually one Amazon expertise. So the strategic, you know, public company I sold to is a retail based like service provider and they wanted e-commerce and Amazon experience. So that's what they wanted. Obviously they'd love for us to sell on Walmart and eBay, which we do. And it's, it's cool, but it's just not as impactful. So you're right at that. It's very risky and it should lead to 
lower valuations. But on the contrary, a lot of these brands and these acquirers are looking for it. So of course, the company that bought him, Thrasio, that once they buy him, maybe they'll use their resources, the idea of a roll-up and try to get him onto the website and try to get him onto Facebook and great. And maybe if he did it on his own before, he would have been worth more. So the answer is yes, it's very risky and it's all in, but it's like, it's like me telling you like, or anyone, you should be all in on selling your product to Walmart or like Kroger. Like that's like the world of like groceries, right? So Amazon is even bigger than both of them combined. So it's different. It's a different question. Now, five years ago, I was much more anxious about it. Now it's like, you're not only on Amazon, like what's wrong with you? Uh, obviously <laughs> you want diversity. It's very hard to create. Um, what often happens is the opposite effect. So we created off of Amazon brands and ideas. And then we went to Amazon and it blew up because we already had the product. Now a guy like him could make beast gear or whatever, be successful on Amazon, prove concept with a huge market and a huge total accessible market. And then be like, okay, now I'm going to be interesting. And I'm going to do Facebook ads and Instagram and drive people to my website and do social and, and do that. And that's cool. It's probably not going to be as much as Amazon because you just don't have as many customers, mm. but it could add a lot of incremental gain. So the answer is, was very risky, still is, but it, like that's the new re- that's the new reality. I don't know how else to to frame yeah. that if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And, and were you part of this? You mentioned this bundling strategy and, and exclusivity and, and and building your own brand. You were able to get better margins because the other thing I've heard from a lot of Amazon sellers is is this just razor thin margins. Yeah. So actually. Not always margins, because when I bundled, I almost ate the cost of the accessories. Maybe they were 20 or 50 cents or a few, a few dollars, but the, it wasn't really to get more margin per se. It was to get the sale or to get the vendor to work with me. So if 20 people are selling the mic, I'm not going to sell so much. Maybe I'll rotate with this buy box with 20 sellers. So I'll get one twentieth of the revenue. The cool thing about all these brands is they had map pricing. So you had to sell at a certain price. So that preserves margin and and. Hopefully, if everyone listens, obviously, this is these bad actors. But if you could preserve that margin, hopefully, you have whatever healthy margin. Obviously, in electronics, it's smaller. But by doing the bundles, you lead to more sales and sales at map pricing, which leads to hopefully a minimal margin that you're comfortable with. So to answer your question, it depends on the, on, the, on the market and what you're doing on Amazon. So if you create your own brand and you know how to source from China and it's like, I don't know, some shirt that costs you like a dollar and you sell it for 30 because you know how to push it. That's a raising margin, even with Amazon fees. But if you're reselling someone else's product, you're second or third down the chain, of course, you're already diluted because there's so many people that have to make money. Like, what kind of margin would you guys work on? Are you able to share? Like, yeah, so roughly roughly, roughly electronics are rough. So I think gro- gross, gross is close, close, let's say 18 to 20% gross, maybe like 10 to 12% net. But again, that's like in a specialty bundling, whatever. Typical electronics margins are like 5% or 4%, very low. Wow. So we had a higher margin because we took a better deal with brands for exclusivity. We got better pricing, but we did, again, we did the work. We made, their, we made them look good. Um, but even 10, you know, you could argue, or 12 is not so high based on other markets. Now, if you make a private label brand and you do it right, you should, you should, or these, like the guy you spoke to in the company that bought him, they look for like 20, 30, 40%, you know, sometimes even net margins because you're, you're like the creator of the brand. You go to the factory, you make the brand, you build it, you have minimal overhead, you ship it straight from China to Amazon. It, there's, it's a lot of margin, right? There's not that many middlemen. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously that's harder because everyone like hit, like he made jump ropes or whatever, so everyone competes with them and they fight on price and, and, and advertising. 
But if done right, you can make a lot of margin on Amazon. Uh, the problem now is that there's so many people making brands that like you have competition. And as you know, there's a lot of Chinese direct competition as well, where they go around you and just sell it on Amazon themselves. And often if it's your product, they, uh, there's factories that will just be like, okay, great. And then we'll make it on our, by ourselves and sell direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the, the caveats, the private label and margin, but it depends. Like I know people who make 3%, but they do hundreds of millions. I know people who make 40% and only do 10 million. And they both have the same net profit. It's kind of crazy, but that's how it is. Yeah. And for you guys, you were kind of a, in the electronic space. You'd expect sort of 5% if you were just a, a standard reseller, but then because you were doing some of these things, exclusive contracts, building your own brand, yes. bundling, you were north, like kind of more like 20%. Well, gross, maybe net round 10 or yeah, gross margin. I mean, yeah, 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 correct. Yeah. 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 Just just goes to show that the power of exclusivity and having, having those kind of special relationships. Yeah. But even, even the gross, the the fact that we got more gross margin is because for that brand, we're doing a lot, right? We're doing ads or we're doing services or making them look good. So like they, they give us that margin because instead of them hiring someone to do the branding and the go-to-market or the design or the promotion, we're doing it. So that's how we create it. Now there's an overhead cost for it, but that's how you're able to add value to them. And you're not just a reseller dude who just like hawks their products. That's the point. You make yeah. it look sexy and good and diverse and interesting or in many different ways. And I know I was reading, I was listening to uh, the Prof G podcast the other day and he was saying that the, uh, the advertising business of Amazon, like when Amazon basically works with third-party resellers and sells them ads, mm-hmm. it's it's like it's it's right below kind of Facebook and 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 some of these major platforms in terms of how much re- revenue they generate just from selling advertising. It's massive. Yeah, so this is like a whole other podcast which we could do, but. I got into Amazon advertising when it started, which is, believe it or not, only like 2017 or 18. And I also, I also started this, this, this Amazon seller show called the Prosper Show, which I also sold. And I always tell people that the first Prosper Show, there were no advertising companies, meaning solution providers that help you with advertising. Yeah. And then when we sold the last show, 19, there was like 15 of them. To your point, Amazon, I think estimated for last year, like 25 billion. And I think this year it's going to be maybe 30 or 40. But yeah. think about it. They already have a platform where everyone buys stuff from them. And now, similar to Google, yeah, but Google's, Google only makes money on the click. Amazon makes money on the commission of the sale and the ad. So they're charging you pay to play in order to rank, which ethically or whatever is this interesting because it doesn't mean it's a great product because it ranks high, but they don't really care. So yeah, you have to spend a lot on advertising, which to the previous point decreases your margins because there's a lot of advertising cost. It's a huge industry for them. It's similar to AWS, which everyone reads about that came about just by accident, you know, because they had their infrastructure of hosting. Amazon makes so much money on margin on AWS and so too on advertising. It's just like a virtual way to make money on the platform that they already have. It's insane. It's going to probably be a hundred billion soon. Um, but it also makes it very hard for sellers uh, to, to compete. When I started on Amazon, there was no ad. So like it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing now. Like if you don't have an ad strategy, like you, you can't even play. So if, if you went to one of these brands and said, let's do an exclusive deal, we'll handle all of your kind of marketing, go to market, your advertising, is the actual cost of advertising being borne by you? Like the actual yeah. payment of those ads or, or by the brand? Yeah, great question. Um, 
so it depends how you structure it. Since I've sold in the last years, there's lots more agencies and people that have been doing this. It's typically a revenue share model. So I'll manage your brand and then I'll take a percentage of sales. I don't even buy inventory. So we did not do that. We were like a buy sell. Um, so in our buy sell agreement for some of the exclusive brands, we would run the ads. They would pay the cost of ads. Mm-hmm. Initially, we marked it up a bit as a service because we had people doing it and we were experts just like an agency would. But to your point, the Amazon ad price became so expensive that like we couldn't really mark it up because it was just like really high. So we just like mm-hmm. ate it. So they would cover the cost of ads and we would manage it. And because of that, and because of we're doing that favor or service for them, you know, they would give us this higher margin because like we were just locked like a barrel managing everything. But now um, there are agencies that manage your advertising or they manage your Amazon sales and take a rev share, but you still pay the cost of ads. So you're kind of paying the cost of ads and you're paying a rev share to the agency. It's, it gets expensive but you actually really need experts to do it because it's very sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into the sales business. So what triggered you to want to sell it? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's not like something popped in my head one day. I think I just had a lot of fatigue and I was burned out from the day-to-day of doing it. Um, I'm like really entrepreneurial and I'm always doing a bunch of other things and I had other things up my sleeve and I wasn't involved in the day-to-day as much maybe as my partner because I just wasn't as enamored or excited and I like the excitement, you know, it's not just about money, obviously and, and enjoyment. And I also saw consolidation where, as we discussed now there's thousands of agencies and every seller is like, Hey, I'm an agency. Like I'll help you too. I'll do it. It's crazy. I didn't realize how much, how consolidated it would be. I didn't realize there would be a pandemic. So I was like, let's sell before it's so consolidated. We have this unique model. There's been some similar comp acquisitions of strategic Amazon resellers that's selling to big companies. There's like a few. Now there's many, again, because of this whole wave. But again, this is pre the wave. So it was quite unique. So I was like, we could continue and make, you know, decent income or salary. The other problem is, you know, with inventory businesses is most of your money is usually in the inventory or in the business. Right, because you were on just, the, yeah, you were buying the, products and then reset. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, you have a lot of inventory, you know, it's very heavy and risky in that regard as discussed with Amazon and brands and you get to take these big positions and, you know, hopefully the partners make some money or distribution when, when the cash flow is proper or when, you know, the, the, the time is right. But it's, it's like, it's kind of a very rough grind. Obviously the, the realization of being able to make a multiple of income on an exit is much more interesting. If, if, it, if you're able to do it, than just making whatever salary a year, unless you have some crazy business where you're making that much more. Um, so you're, you're taking these positions, you're buying the, the routers, the mic stands or whatever from China, you're, you're actually paying cash. So you're, you're pushing out cash to bring them in and then you're, you're selling them. And, and so there's, it's a negative cash flow cycle in the sense you're buying the product up front. Yeah. So, so costly. For you, like, are you pulling down a like a living wage at this point? Like, are you paying yourself market rate? Yeah, so like when I started, salary from the company. Yeah. So when I started, I didn't even like know about how much money I was making really in detail. It was kind of like just like let me sweat and figure out this, and then like understand, start taking a draw. So as we got more mature, I was taking like a decent salary to maybe cover my expenses, uh, if that, but nothing significant because I really wanted it to be in the business. But again, with his inventory fluctuations and reserves and swings, it's hard to really just pulled that X amount of money with cash flow, you know, which we could talk about um, and lines of credit and whatnot. Um, so that was one of the reasons I was like, how do I realize more money from this and, and value for all that I've done? Cause it's worth a lot, but I'm not like seeing a lot every day. 
Um, it's not so like those that, cash flow positive businesses where the the owners no, sucking out like no, a million or two it, a year in dividends. No, and, and there are Amazon resellers that are like that, but again, mm. it's like it's very hard. It's very inconsistent. So the idea of selling was like was interesting because of that. In addition to the fact that I wanted to kind of move on, do something new, or see how it would work, I didn't know we would be able to sell or if it would be successful. But those reasons of money or time or mindset kind of made me want to see if I can go through this process, which which we did. So long, interesting learning process, but that's kind of what spurred it. I would Where say. was Jonathan at on the topic? Like he's running the business more day to day. Yeah, he also, we had interesting conversations in both ways, um, but he also wanted to do it, which is good. We obviously were aligned on that, um, or at least to see what we could or could not get, because he also was tired with a lot of the same things, even though he was really great at it and he liked it. You know, he, he wanted to, maybe learn to do other things um, and see how we can, you know, maximize what we have. Um, so we're pretty much aligned, even though we had different roles and, and mindsets. Uh, it took us a while to figure out that we should do this um, and how to do it, which we could talk about, but we, we, we were aligned. It just took a while to kind of get to the right, speaking to a lot of people and researching a lot to get to the right, like, uh, path or trajectory on how it should be done and when and all that stuff. As you guys are having those conversations, do you have a sense in your mind of what the company might be worth? Like what, like, are you using sort of any sort of benchmark or industry multiple or like, what, what are you thinking? Yeah. So I started with brokers and I realized like it was too downstream. I wanted more of like an investment bank, even though we're not that big, but we're like mid market, which, you know, is like big term. You're it's like 30 million big. in revenue at this point. Yeah. Ish. A little, yeah. Ish. Um, but again, whatever the whatever the income is on that, and the the you know, it's like the bankers will will, will try to see what you're going to make and the, their percentage of it, right? So if you're going to sell for ten or twenty or thirty or forty million, maybe they'll play with you because it's worth their time or it's worth their retainer. So we're in this mid market where it's not too much, it's not too little, I guess for them. Um, where like, are they going to put in their all and their effort to really get a maximal sale when maybe they'll just get the minimum amount? Or how do you create upsides within their agreement to? incentivize them to work harder, right? Because they're just really a matchmaker. The brokers are more downstream where they make more money on the first million. They have this whole reverse model. And it's like, that was like, not my speed. Oh, we'll put you up on a site or we'll list you on it. Like that was too primitive. I was like, let's do something strategic, right? Because you read online and the paper that strategic is the best thing. Cause like one plus one equals 10 and they want you and you want them. And it's like this amazing concept, which is a little fairy tale-ish, but fundamentally it's true. Meaning if the acquirer could really need you and then, you have the right synergy, you could blow up with uh, the outcome. So I wanted to find a strategic acquirer uh, versus just like, even even a, even just a private equity group or a money group that I just didn't really think would be are fit. You, so are you thinking it's a multiple of your EBITDA that you're- Yeah, I didn't answer your get? question. Uh, yeah, multiple of EBITDA based on these brokers and bankers and people I spoke to, obviously inventory comes into the play as well, value of inventory. Yeah, how does that, yeah. Yeah, how does that work? <laughs> I think about it sometimes. Sometimes people do, you know, kind of cash-free, debt-free, and inventory is transferred. Sometimes it's part of the deal because it's like, it's like an asset sale. There's lots of ways to do it. I know these aggregators do it one way, but I don't even know how maybe I kind of overlooked that component of it, right? Because let's say you sell your business for $10 million, but you have $4 million of inventory. So is that in addition? Is that part of it? Is there, you know, a networking capital component, which in my deal there was. So like it, it's kind of dynamic, 
Right. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about your deal. So, I want to get to the inventory later because that's an important piece. Yeah, sure. But b- before we go there, um, you're you're thinking it's a multiple of EBITDAs is the is the is the way. Like, do you have some sort of range that you think is reasonable or that you would consider yeah. again before you take it to market? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. So, based on speaking to bankers, brokers, people in this kind of premature market and some comps, I'm thinking like. Depends on the acquirer, but maybe, you know, a range of, I don't know, five to seven X adjusted EBITDA based on lots of conjecture, but some comps and reason, again, based on the acquirer and what they're going to do with it. Um, But that's obviously a big range as well. Five to seven, four to eight. Obviously, some bankers will tell you more because they think they can or they want to impress you. But that was where we kind of thought, you know. Got it. Got it. And what was the next step? It sounds like you did hire an M&A firm to take you. Yeah. Market. So I, I didn't want to go through brokers. I interviewed a bunch of bankers. That was very tough because of this middle market thing. And a lot of them were just like kind of not impressive in my opinion, because they weren't like full on investment banks and some were okay. So we wound up working with a bank that was pretty good that um, was like a middle market investment banker, a banking firm, you know, that had an interesting structure. Um, this kind of maybe market was newer to them. I was going to go with another bank that had done a deal similar in the space. I just, I just, just didn't feel it, the, the chemistry and the process there. I figured they would be good because they did a similar tra- transaction. But then I learned through my research then and even after the fact a lot now, like why that would have been not a good idea. So that this is kind well, of like a dicey learn? period. I learned that it was kind of just like a, you know, a bunch of... It, you know, you call it a bank, a bunch of people like freelance, uh, interesting personalities, interesting drama that like I would not have been able to swallow. And I don't think they'd be able to get the process done or be efficient and, and like professional. Um, I don't what know. Signs it was, it was kind you, of interesting. I mean, one of the questions we get a lot is like, how do I find an M&A firm to take me to market? Like, what do I look for, et cetera? Right. So what was it that, you saw in that firm that you were like uneasy about, like, was it a way they communicated with one another or their logo or there's like, what was it that you thought? Oh, that doesn't look quite right. Uh, honestly, you know, the person, the reason I, this, in this example, if you want to go there, the person I considered had done a similar kind of deal of a similar kind of company to a similar target that I was looking at. So I was like, Oh, this is perfect. Like just, you'll sell us too. And you'll probably get more because they, they love you and they want more of this. But on a personal level, like the person's personality and like the makeup of the firm and the, my confidence that they'd be able to do it, just meeting the people, which I flew out and met them and understood them, just didn't really jive with me. Also, they were on the West Coast. They were on a, I don't want to go any detail. They were on a different coast than me. I don't want to travel and meet them. Okay. And like, if I'm going to meet clients and meet them, like I'd rather have someone close to me and meet them in person and meet people in their office, which is actually really important. People, I mean, now it's different with COVID, but people belittle that. It's really important to, have that like to be close to them and to be close to meetings. So the bank I worked with was in New was in New York and like we could just go to their office, have a meeting with them, with their with a auditor, with an acquirer, whatever we needed to get the deal done. It was like our little office just for that. It also helps, right? Which is a separate topic I'm sure we talk about about telling your team. Like I don't want everyone to know what's going on per se right away. So we had a certain level of privacy and confidentiality and that that was very helpful, which is which is cool. So who did you think was you mentioned this 
original firm that you were considering had sold a business similar to a firm and you're like, yeah, let's go do that. So who did you think was the the strategic acquirer? Like what was the, who did you think would be interested in buying your business? So there was a bunch of companies like Advantage Solutions, which was the acquirer that were like these retail consumer product based large, like selling it to Costco and Target and Walmart and like lots of retail, very heavy focus on retail that needed more e-commerce diversification. That was like a really cool strategic target in my opinion, because they needed, let's say expertise. They already have all these brands and, and know-how and access. Like why not just take it online in an Amazon play? That would be helpful to them. Or furthermore, what about a digital agency that's helping brands with Google? I mean, now it's kind of ubiquitous, believe it or not. And it went in like two years, but then there's all these agencies doing Google and Facebook and Instagram, but not Amazon. Now, now they all have an Amazon play, but then they didn't. So it's like, maybe we could sell to them. That proved to be harder because we weren't really an agency, like a rev share model. We actually had inventory. Mm. So that was a yeah, little, that's that, was those a, guys. <laughs> that was a challenge for us. So we sold to this company that was more used to inventory and more used to retail. So that was another kind you- of interesting lesson. What did your investment banker think this, this, so you had these ideas of this digital agency, maybe a consumer practice goods company uh, with a retail distribution. Um, what did your M&A firm think the ideal strategic would be? Um, I mean, th- those were two of the targets that we kind of set. Again, like I knew a lot about this subspace and they knew, we knew people and places. That's another challenge with the bank. Like, who do they know? Like, a lot of times, actually, I introduced a lot of the leads because I knew it from my networking. And even this acquirer I actually knew beforehand or I knew of them. So that's interesting. But they thought those ideas were fine, like a, a digital agency, consumer product company, uh, or even a retail store that wanted an online presence, um, or maybe, and that's on the strategic, and then maybe a little less strategic, but like, you know, a roll up a private equity group that wants a company with, you know, to roll it up with some others. Or just to invest in it, uh, stand alone, and you know, take it to the next level. But there's lots of different uh, angles that we tried and reached mm-hmm. out to, to to come to like a an outcome. Or an and what happened? Party. How many? How like who who kind of bedded in? How many how many companies did you negotiate with? Um, we had some offers from like some private equity companies that kind of wanted to take it over and run it on their own and take it to the next level with their cash and know how. Um, Nothing so impressive to me as far as chemistry or fit, but interesting. And obviously it helps in the process, right? Because you want to create a competitive process and almost like poker kind of let people bid on you. Um, we tried to do that. It was somewhat successful, but, you know, it's always a game. Um, and some other kind of like companies similar to the acquirer that were interested. Um, but then the this acquirer like kind of came in pretty aggressive and like we just were like okay like this makes sense so was there wasn't the that much there wasn't that much like poker so to speak the acquirer was a company called advantage solutions which was not which is a public company they weren't actually public then they went public in 20 uh 20 got it and so when you say they came in aggressively first of all advantage solutions tell me a little bit they had brands they were selling into retail stores it's just describe yeah they're it. a very it's like a it's a very large company honestly i don't even understand every something that they do um, i worked for them for years so i got that whole corporate understanding which is very interesting to say the least but um they, those are uh, not there now <laughs> exactly um <laughs> they um like let's say you're selling products into Walmart and Target and Kroger or, or even Best Buy, 
uh, it's more food, uh, also product. Like they'll help you get in and they have reps to get you into retail and they help you with fulfillment and they help you with the coupons and the marketing and the point of sale. Lots of these things behind the scenes that you see when you go to a Costco, they do, they have a team of like 20,000 part-time employees that do all the tastings in the Costco. For oh, the product. okay. So they're almost like so a they, marketing agency. Yeah. It's like this giant company. I, I didn't even understand uh, that does, you know, product samples and display and logistics for it and, and oh, you know, okay. field teams. And, but again, this is all for retail, right? What about e-commerce? So then they started buying e-commerce companies because they're like, hey, all these retail brands that we help for Costco, why can't we get them onto Amazon? Why can't we get them onto eBay? So they built a whole digital division. Now there's like nine companies in it. We were like the, maybe the sixth that just focused on web, right? Which is obviously smart based on what's going on in the world. Sure. Like, let's take our old school, so to speak, retail full service company into the internet. That was the, that's what they do or that's what they tried to do. Or that's what we tried to do. So they would, so Advantage Solutions would work with the brand and they would say, great, you know, we can help you get into Kroger and we'll, we'll do merchandising for you and sampling and we'll do yep. slotting and et cetera. So they were similar to what you guys did. Not exactly, but similar. Yeah, but, but on a retail level. Yeah, on the retail right. level. But so they wanted years, to tell brands. I mean, we didn't have that much opportunity to cross-pollinate with this whatever short time I was there, but they wanted an e-commerce arm too. So eventually once that's built up, they could take all their brands and roll it into that and say, hey, we do everything for you. We do retail, we do e-commerce, we do yeah. whatever you need. That was the, like, that's like the holy idea, you know, how that comes to fruition is often difficult. So you mentioned you had these private equity companies kind of sniffing around. Did you get any LOIs from them? Yeah, a few, but I didn't really feel the synergy or the, I don't know if it would have closed or it just wasn't, didn't feel great for me. So tell me, tell me about that. Cause I think a lot of our listeners would be getting um, some inbound interest right now from private equity groups and it's hard for them to know like what's serious, what's not. Yeah. I don't um, know. I learned a lot about strategic public companies, private equity, uh, and even within private equity, like different subsets of private equity. I have a, a good friend, a partner, another business that's in a private equity firm. He educated me a lot. You know, the idea there is, you know, always there's something strategic, right? Let's roll up lots of companies and build this nice little sub thing that could sell for that much more. And you could make mm-hmm. a second bite and you could roll equity and like that whole concept. So from what I read and what I've heard, like that sounded really cool, but the ones that approached us didn't, weren't so maybe polished in that matter, or they didn't even understand what we did enough, which is funny. Cause now that's like the older age, everyone's rolling up Amazon companies, but they didn't get that. So it wasn't there, but yeah, for your listeners, that's a cool option uh, from what I learned. And you probably know this or, if you disagree, you know, private equity moves quicker, but they'll pay you less. Strategic is slow and clunky, but they'll pay you more. So I was like, great, let's get more if, if, if it works. But I had some private equity options that I think would have maybe even been better in hindsight. I don't know. I just didn't feel it. Just didn't. Were they, were they offering me cash or were, were they, for, were they? Um, I think they were, or? I don't honestly recall all of it. Um, Cause some, the, not all of them were super solid offers. Cause I didn't really, I kind of said, I'm not so into that even, you know, term sheet or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it but somewhere most of it had some kind of earnout component um which is a separate conversation about earnouts which we could talk about but um usually like a cash plus earnout model or like join this new group and you could be on the team and you know do this next in your career one was just like all out like oh we're going to take over we're going to get rid of you in three months like have a nice day yeah. I didn't really believe, I mean, that's great. I didn't think they'd be able to, and I didn't really believe in that company. I think it was, the, it was a good offer from a dollar perspective, but like, you know, I'm sure people say this on their show. It's also like your baby, right? Like it's not just about money at all. You want it to find the right home. 
And like, I just think these guys would destroy the company, uh, even though the money was like great, but like, it's not just about that. Also, you my employees, where are my employees going? Like, I want them to be, you know, I'm very loyal to them. They're loyal to me. Like, I want them to be happy. So it's, it's very, I learned this more in retrospect, but it's very multifaceted. Like who, who you partner with. Yeah. In terms of advantage solutions, you mentioned they came in uh, aggressively. What, what do you mean by aggressively? Um, maybe the aggressive is not the word, but, but relative to all the other um, interested parties, they were like much more serious about the term sheet, the timing. I think they wanted to, again, I just, just a little disclosure. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say because they're public and whatever. So it may be a little vague on purpose if people don't understand um, to clarify, but you know, they're going, they, they went public. So now I could say it. So they wanted to acquire revenue in EBITDA. So they had goals and timelines and, and, and all these things that were behind the scenes that I kind of knew, I kind of heard whispers. So I knew they'd want to get the deal done for that, for better or worse. So maybe that's what I mean by aggressive. Like, let's it's like the old done. IBM sales training. This goes back 50 years ago. You yeah. know, the whole, you know, make sure they have budget and they have authority. I can't remember, like it's some acronym i can't remember what it is but essentially you were almost doing doing diligence on them they looked motivated they had a reason they had a strategic rationale they had money clearly that's what you were doing you, you knew that 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 yeah i knew that and i said that's what i mean like they, they they had a timeline like they wanted to close like i think they made the offer in august they wanted to close it by the end of the year which is also kind of aggressive um mm-hmm. you know were the was the offer as aggressive or strategic i don't know i guess we could we could discuss in retrospect if it was or wasn't, but yeah. So how did they that's, structure that's the what offer? Transpired. Yeah, how did they structure the offer? Um, like- I can't talk to the details of the like detailed structure, but it was similar to what I mentioned, like you know a certain cash component, certain earnout component over time. So a certain upfront cash and a certain um, a certain amount of upside based on performance over a period of time of the of the company under their management. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And and multiple, can you get, give us sort of a range of where, where it landed? Um, somewhere in between the, the range I mentioned to you before, yeah. think, which is like four to six or five to seven. Again, with the earnout and the potential, I, I could tell you where that actually was, right? Because yeah, the earnout, yeah. if you add it, changes the multiple, you know, the aggregate number. But maybe it was a little, maybe the offer was a little less than I expected, but maybe with the earnout, the value will be more of what I thought it would be. It's really hard to say because I'm, um, um, I'm still like looking back at the quick year that I worked for them and what happened and transpired on the numbers level, which is very kind of sophisticated at a corporate level. That was kind of hard for me to to understand, uh, to be frank. But yeah, I think it was within the range of what I expected. Um, I was a little surprised that we didn't get some other offers um, from other parties but i also think it was the timing right like now if we would have sold like post-covid once we like blew up further because of the market and amazon and tech and everything we sell and work from home uh, we would probably got many more offers but you know that's timing that's life or i could have argued the opposite you know when covid happened i was like oh shoot like we're done like we're not gonna do any sales or it's gonna be zero or whatever negative and like everything's everything's bad and that was true for two weeks and then we turned it around and like we we did great because we we just it's a whole story, but we mixed and matched it wherever we could to stay alive. And then Amazon exploded and e-commerce exploded and the world changed. And that that's the story. But, um, you know, timing is very key, as you see from this story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you did the year, sort of the earnout was one year? Um, approximately. 
longer, but you left early. <laughs> You're uh, not the same. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, what was it like to work for a big company? You're an entrepreneurial guy. It's very hard for me um, because I'm used to like controlling, not controlling, but like being under, being able to control. I'm not a controlling person. I just like to understand and know. So to have, the truth is they let most of, uh, you know, most of the functions where we were continuing, but, you know, corporate finance team and all that and transitioning and all these brands and revenue and numbers, the transition was very difficult for me. Um, the team, most of the team was fine. We continued the process. Um, but on some of the processes, it was hard because um, you kind of have to roll up to a much bigger company, right? We're a 15-person company going to like a 40,000-person company with $4 billion in revenue. And like all their corporate compliance and systems and public checks and balances was like insane. So I was way under my pay grade as far as like handling finance or management or operations for that. And I kind of needed them to help me with it. And, you know, eventually we figured it out, but it takes time. Um, you know, it takes a lot of time. And... It's just totally different than what I'm used to. I mean, I, I got into business. I, I didn't mention this at the beginning. Like I was in dental school. I dropped out. I just started business on my own. I figured things out. And like I tried to do the best I could. And then I, I come into this corporate world. I'm like, and I learned a lot, like how it works and why and a lot about finance. But it was just so diametrically different than like what I'm used to. Culture, processes, motivation, bonus, like everything. It was very shocking to me. Very hard to understand even. Like why businesses would function that way, but you know they're they're do well. They're a public company, and like that's how it works. But yeah, I was like, I I know I I did not even understand what I was getting into. To be frank, I know we can't talk specifically about about the earnout, and 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 I understand that. Sure. If you and I were having a beer, and I was like, you know, I'm thinking of signing up for an earnout. I've got this deal. They want. You know, they want me to stick around for three years. Yep, thirty percent of my value is going to be at risk in in this kind of this earnout. What advice would you give me over that beer? You know, a lot of people told me when I got this earnout offer, like, you know, the risk and reward. Like, you just don't know what's going to be and how it's going to roll and what's going to happen and why. Um, so I wasn't sure what to do, but I guess if we were having a beer, I would say not necessarily based on my experience, but based on all my research and, and stories I've heard, try to get as much as you can up front because you just never know. Mm -hmm. So if you really feel, and this is something I didn't do, not that that led to a problem per se, but I didn't really research the company and understand exactly how it worked because I couldn't. Like it was just a huge company. It's not like, oh, you guys, you know, you're whatever you're going to buy us. Let's go see what the culture is and figure it out and talk like this is a huge company with all these layers. There's no way I could have known, but I probably should have done more research and everyone should. So if you do that research and you really feel good that their earnout goals and the way it's going to be calculated and organized is transparent and clear and you could hit it, then you should consider it. But if you don't really know what that means, you shouldn't really begin to consider it because you don't even know what that means. It's just, it's just like paper stock. Okay, maybe I'll get this. Okay, what if what if your agreement, and this is a legal thing too, says, okay, but these are the restrictions. So it's very risky, I think, unless you really know what you're getting into and you have a very solid understanding of your business and their business and how it's going to work and what the agreement is. Without that, it's very risky to do an earnout because, you know, you're getting less money and you may never get the, the, the remainder that you should have. So the caveat is, yeah, but, but if you really feel good about it and you're really confident, 
it's probably worth the risk. I guess the lesson is you have to understand that. Now, you'll tell me, I'm sure your other speakers will, or guests will say, well, you just, you just don't know sometimes. Hmm. So the answer is, I, my, so if I had a beer with you, I'd say, I would say don't do it unless you really understand exactly how it's going to work and you have a great feeling about it. You have a great understanding of it. And even then, obviously there's risk, but it's much more calculated risk versus just a random like roulette, which is not wise in any business or anything in life. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah, my sure. long winded convoluted answer, but I think it makes yeah. sense. Now I realize we have to be a bit sensitive to. Yeah. 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 It's, not, it's not like I had a bad, like a great or bad experience. It's just like looking back what people told me, what happened, how it works, understanding. And a lot of people who else who've sold that I've spoken to, I'm sure you get it a lot, but usually, I mean, I, I could ask you, usually people say like, don't go for, I don't know. What do people ask? What do people say to you as the common answer on the show? Yeah. To that question. Front. Right. So, okay. <laughs> so, <catch> front. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's a straight beer answer, but, but the yeah. caveat is, you know, what I said, um, that it depends. Like I know someone who did amazing in earn out. I know another yeah. company who sold a different company that did amazing. And maybe, you know, my trajectory could have been similar or the same, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just risk. It's added risk, but it, who knows, maybe there's, there's that reward. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think if if it were me and you having a beer, I'd say, you know, get get your minimum number up front in cash. Meaning, if if the earnout comes to nothing, uh, you don't get any of it. You won't look back on selling with tremendous regret. Uh, that if you know that if you hit the earnout, it's like amazing. You you, you guys, but if right. you don't, then it's still it's still a, a single in a baseball analogy. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. How did your relationship with Jonathan evolve during the negotiations with Advantage? Um, it's an interesting question. So as I said, as the business got older, we kind of like spread our roles and functions and 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 priorities. And he was more in the business and I was more like development, figuring out next steps, kind of burnt out. But when we sold, we were much more aligned. But the good thing is that since he's a really great operator, he was able to run the business and keep it going and keep the growth, which is really helpful when you sell, right? You want to go out with a bank on, on a lift. And I was able to, you know, vet the bankers, meet the brokers and the bankers. And then obviously he helped when he was on the calls, but I was able to kind of uh, quarterback that process with his help. But I really ran it. Like I really owned it, which is fun for me in a way. It was like a challenge. And then, once we got the offer, okay, let's like, I got to run the diligence and I got to meet with these accountants and lawyers and all these people. And, you know, so we worked tightly to do it, but I was doing a lot more of the detail on this versus him running mm -hmm. the business, which is great. Cause I'm sure you get a lot of founders that say, or people on your show that say, Oh, you know, I was selling, but I was, I was so busy uh, with diligence that our numbers got screwed up. For like, sure. All so it's like classic. Yeah. Right. So this, we were able to, I think balance that well so that our numbers were, I guess as good as they could be. And we didn't so you're like, Jonathan, out. run the business. I'll do the process. I'll keep you in the loop, but just. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously he still helped and he was involved and I wasn't really running so much of the business then. So it wasn't so much of a difference. It was just like, okay, Ethan, now's the goal. We got it. Now you take it to the next level and I'll help. And it was a good, got it was it. a good uh, dynamic. And, and had an advantage. I'm curious to know, because a lot of people listening to this will have that sort of similar, you know, owner versus second in command or president CEO roles separated, whatever. Um, 
where they have someone kind of running the business day to day, making sure that trains get, you know, get there on time, et cetera. And, and then you have a founder who may be a little less just involved in the day to day. How did advantage, uh, lock Jonathan up? Like, did, did he get an earn out, um, like, how do they ensure that the person actually doing the work stayed? Yeah, I can't really talk to the details of the structure of the deal, but we stayed for a bit. I think their approach and most big companies' approach is like, it's nice to have the founder. And as I told all potential acquirers, like, yeah, I'm happy to stay on. I'll do what I can. Like, that's the right thing to say. And it's true. I want it to be successful. But like, I really would like to move on eventually. Like, oh, why are you selling then? Like, what's, you know, what's going on? Like, yeah, we need to take it to the next level. We need a partner and I want to move on, but everything's great and I'll help you as much as I can. So that was kind of the thing with them. I think since they're very big and they want to, they don't want to rely on an entrepreneur, they want to kind of build it into their process. So they're okay with, let's say, a founder leaving, but they want to know that they have you for a certain time. You know, it's not like if I left after a certain time, like uh, there'll be a problem, but obviously it would affect the earnout, it would affect the transparency. Um, so between me and John, I mean, there were some discussions, like we told them what we feel and how we feel. I think we were both open to see what it was like to work for a corporation. And, you know, it wasn't so much my speed and, um, John, he, actually, stay? Well, he, he stayed a little more than me, but not, but he's not there now. No, um, no. you know, he also thought maybe he could learn certain things and he did and what would be best for him and what wouldn't. So that was a very hard decision for him. It was more easy for me just based on my personality, um, or ambitions. But whatever, you know, teach his own. Um, mm-hmm. So again, like they wanted us to stay, but if we didn't, they'd like probably kind of try to figure it out. Um, not sure where that will lead the company in the future because, you know, not involved. But it's interesting. Uh, that was an interesting like uh, topic, so to speak. Yeah. And how did it work with you and Jonathan at the time? Because clearly you wanted to move on. He was a little more on the fence. Like, because if I were Jonathan, I'd be like, dude, don't leave me, leave me holding the bag here. Like I, I need, you know, I, I need you to come too. Like, was there, were those conversations going on? You're saying before we sold, whether I was going to continue? Yeah. Like, like it's like, um, I can't think of a good analogy, but you're, your partners in this business. You're thinking of selling to this giant fortune 500 company. Um, was the conversation around like, I'll stay, but I need you to stay. Like, was there that conversation that happened that, that, um, yeah. Well, so again, I mentioned we had to earn out. So we, I wanted to make sure we maximize that. So, so you was there both a mutual, that yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, obviously. Yeah. There wasn't. A, okay. So I, I guess, yeah, it was, it was a company level thing or an equity level thing. It wasn't specific to each person. So I guess okay. I say that, or I said that. So it, you know, it behooves everyone to try to stay and make the best of it and benefit. Um, comes tricky a little. Let's say I didn't want to stay, but if I didn't, and then the numbers went down, that would affect him, and then I feel bad. So whatever. Obviously, we're partners in it together and very close. So we wanted to do the best for each other, and we tried to do that to the best of our ability. Um, how did they? How did they handle inventory in the valuation? You mentioned it was a multiple of EBITDA. What, what I don't know if I can talk to the exact details, but it was an asset purchase. So it was kind of funky how inventory was treated, but it's not like an additive number. It's part of the value of the business that's purchased. Right. So they have assessed the value of the inventory and the reserve of it. And, and, and they audit that to make sure it's accurate. And it's kind of part of that chunk of, of, of what you're worth. Right. Cause even, even EBITDA is, is, is 
a derivative of inventory value, right? It's like all kind of tied together. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the kind of thing like, hey, we'll pay you all this for your inventory and all this for your business. It's like one big kind of picture. There's other ways to do it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether whether it's right or wrong or, or recommended, like, you know, that's a separate conversation of tax ramifications and hot assets. Like it's a whole thing. But um, I think it's conventional. I know with these aggregators, they treat it a bit differently. Um, like they pay something for inventory, a cost basis, and they pay something for multiple, but there's like a, there's like a threshold. So I don't know exactly how it rolled out, but in, in our case, it was kind of like one large discussion. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Yeah. I think that's, that's more common than, than not. I think in very small companies, uh, the inventory often gets treated separately, but, but, but I think in, in businesses that are more, uh, the size of yours, uh, you know, it's a multiple yep. data and the inventory think so. goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned you'd been running this company for years and kind of moving the money from one PO to another and, and kind of not pulling out a lot of cash for yourself. Did you reward yourself in any way when you sold and the, and the cash came in? I mean, was there a trophy? Was there, how did that, how did, how did you sort of mark that when the money was sort of filing in the bank? Yeah. Um, it's kind of weird for me because I was always like pretty tight, so to speak. Always my money was in the company. So to have like a decent amount of money in the bank was interesting. Yeah. Again, not, not, not the, the key to happiness in life by any means. And I actually felt very interesting when I saw like, I didn't feel full, just a separate point. I didn't really feel like, Oh, like I just, I made it. I'm so fulfilled or like everything's great. Obviously money is important. Supporting my family is important. I'm not such a showy or, you know, materialistic person. Um, I, I don't know. I moved to a new house. That was nice. Um, nice. I was, um, I, um, I don't know. Maybe I got some stuff for my wife. Um, maybe it's more stuff that we needed that we just been, hadn't bought, but I didn't like, you know, buy a yacht or anything remotely close to that. You're not um, tooling around New Jersey in a Ferrari or anything like that. No, no, no. <laughs> I just got actually a cool car that I, that I like. Um, oh, you did get a Ferrari. I did. I did. But that was, that was only, um, <laughs> I'll be honest. Yeah. But there's a little, there's a little, there's a little caveat to that. But I. Um, What's the caveat? The caveat is that. <laughs> I can't believe you bought a Ferrari. You're like I'm no, a, not, not a Ferrari. No, no, no. <laughs> I got like a cool, like electric SUV, which I, which is a little more expensive than I normally would have bought. Okay. But the caveat is that I learned that now I have a new, my new company, which if you want, we can talk about. So now I have my own LLC or entity. And you could deduct the car, like all, all this fun stuff. Again, yeah. like I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy to buy something like really expensive. Like it bothers me maybe principally because it's not necessary. Um, but did the truth is, yes, I did get a cool car. Y. y or an X? Did you get the Y or the X? No, actually, it wasn't a Tesla. It was an Audi, oh, Audi e-tron, which is the coolest like car. It? I love it. And I'm not like, again, I'm not Mr. Car, Mr. Showy, but like it's the coolest thing. It's like a spaceship. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was more expensive. And then I would typically, whatever, but I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And I have the federal discount. Like I'm always thinking about cost basis. Um, so I'm like, I'm like, I'm like explaining to my friends, like, yeah, this is really nice. But if you think about it, the effectual cost is only, you know, the price of a Honda Accord because I'm going to deduct it. They're like, okay, it's okay. You could buy a nice car. Like relax. Yeah. So like, I'm not into that. So it was weird for me. But the answer, the truth is yes, I did buy a cool car and I, I moved to a bigger house for my family, which is nice. And in the area that I wanted to move to. So I don't know if those are trophies or just uh, maybe they are. But um, yeah, it was that was cool. They're uh, the rewards for a job well done. It sounds like you mentioned <laughs> you weren't happy when you 
I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, 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 ha- you mentioned you didn't feel the way you thought you'd feel when you sold your business. So what, what did you feel when you sold? Yeah, I wanted to maybe bring that up. I don't know. I, well, it was very hard because I went from selling to like doing an inventory and like going straight into this other company and going into an earnout period, which is very stressful and difficult and changing and dynamic. So I never got the time. Let, let me just prior, maybe edit my statement. I never got the time to even like relish or understand or accept. Okay, like, hey, I did this because I went straight into like crazy pressure to perform, which is very hard, especially mm-hmm. when you can't control your outcome uh, fully. Um, so I never got the time to like celebrate or have a drink or go out with my wife or whatever it is to celebrate. Um, but but in addition, I felt like a little empty in that. I was like, okay, like, this is what it's about. Like, okay, now what? Like, do I feel really happy as a person? Like, is that the point of life? Like, what about all the other things that are important to me or religion or family or it doesn't have like to do with this. It's good to have some money. It's very important. It's super important. I was, you know, just buy happiness. It's very, very good to have. And it's very um, helpful, <laughs> but it's just, I also really enjoy the game. Like I enjoy business and building and entrepreneurship. And like, I was like, wait, I sold this company, but that was like my fun. That was like my baby. So I felt like a little like, I don't know. It was very, it was very weird psychologically for me for a while. And then just running into this whole earnout stressful period and then the pandemic. And then like last year was like, I don't know, it was very tough for me mentally, just like adjusting, calibrating, you know? So it wasn't like, Oh great. I made some good money. Like I should be so happy and everything's great. Not at all. Like I wanted the next challenge. I'm very into like challenges and which I'm, you know, I started part of this new company now, which is great. I actually have a place where I could grow another company and a lot of, I know a lot of founders don't find, find their space and they get maybe even depressed or, or, you know, you know, like they have the stories of people win the lottery and they go bankrupt. Like, obviously sure. not like that, but like, okay, now what, you know, you think because of all the hoopla, like, Oh, that, that, that's the end goal. But I like working. I like people. I like helping. I want to do charity. So I was just like, at this weird transition. I'm still, still not there yet <laughs> to be frank. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing in, in sure. such candor because I think it's a very real thing and uh, it's part of the journey. So before we let you go, tell me what, about the new the new company. What are you doing now? Oh, sure. Yeah, so I'll try to make it brief. So we sell on Amazon as discussed. Um, Amazon sometimes makes mistakes with inventory and data and numbers. Um, so I actually created a software back in 2000 and 11 in-house to kind of find these discrepancies in data. And then like I had this developer and he kind of started another company doing it, um, which is another discussion. But um, I always knew that there was that problem, even if it's one or 2%, if you're getting that money back, similar to auditing, you know, phone bills or shipping, sure. it's important. So I use different providers and I actually had the Prosper show, that other company that I found, this Amazon seller show, I met the guys from Katita, which is a company I'm working with now, and they were much better and sophisticated in their process and know-how. And I used them as a tool for my company, Quantum, to recover funds, which is, and they were much more successful and robust than the competition out there and than what I could do in-house. And I became kind of closer with them along the way. And I sent them a lot of business just like for fun to see what they could do. And all the clients were happy. So I realized there was something significant to it. And I wanted to kind of stay in the space that I was in with an Amazon and the seller community from the show and from my business. So I kind of got more serious with them about like, hey, how can I take you to the next level? Like what, what, you know, how can I be a part of it? I was more interested in like equity and, and upside and growing than, you know, a salary or something like that. And long story short, I kind of worked during the pandemic 
part of it in their office and I became really close with the, the founders and I brought a lot of business kind of just as a token to show what I could do. And I negotiated like a, a partnership position and I invested as a CEO and now I'm trying to take it to the next level um, where we, again, help sellers get money back, um, which really, you know, to the topic of selling companies, you know, all that money that we get back falls to the bottom line, which is a multiple, sure, which helps me. So I give, I, I talk to large strategic sellers as an example. I'm like, I believe in this company. I'm putting my money behind it. I'm the CEO of it. Like, this is the real deal. This is why it's better than the competition or this is why it's, you should be doing it. Most people don't know this is a thing, right? Most people don't know they could audit their phone bills or their electric and sometimes it's significant. Sometimes it's not, but um, it's free money. So it's a great, easy sale. You know, we only charge money. Uh, we only charge a percentage of recovery when recovered, no, no long-term agreements. And What's the name of like, the company and where do people called, find out about it's it? It's called Getida, which is this little sign behind me yeah. here. So G-E-T-I-D-A.com and you can read about it. Anyone selling an Amazon FBA, uh, which is most sellers, we can support you, whether you're doing a, mil- a million or a hundred million in sales. We work with agencies, we work with brands, we work with all types of sellers, um, developing other products too, but really around this whole financial audit space. And it's also like three minutes from my house, which is great. So I don't have to go back and forth to the city. It's three hours you know where, commuting. You know where to drive the Audi. <laughs> it doesn't have such a long range, this car. I mean, it does, but not compared to a Tesla. So yeah, I, I drive it on the weekends or I drive it uh, whenever that's true. Um, but um, yeah, I should start walking to work for exercise. I'm, I'm thinking about <laughs> it, but it's really nice. I'm very local. You know, the work-life balance is very um, different. You know, I have four kids and like I'm right here and can spend more time with them. So, you know, that's important to me. I worked a lot at my first company and uh, just the balance, as you know, is always challenging. So hopefully yeah. this will be a bit more balanced. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm up to now. The URL is getita.com. We'll put that in the show notes at built the cool. cell. Cool. Thank you. .com. Hey, Tom, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.